want to talk about a town and a person. Um, but what I really want to talk about is something that you have to have in your life. Something you have to have in your life if you ever want to see a change. Okay? Now, maybe you're happy with your status quo. Maybe you think your life is rocking along just great, just fine, as it is, and you're cool with it. If that's the case, you can kind of tune me out until the end of the day and get it all worked out. Okay? But if you want to see change and growth and a difference, you, your family, your kids, your marriage, your business, if you want to see that, maybe you should listen for a minute. I want to talk about, we're going to be in like Luke 4, Luke 5, which that's kind of long. I want to summarize Luke 4 and then jump into Luke 5. In Luke 4, something really interesting happens. It's the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He doesn't have his disciples yet. Okay? Matthew 3 tells us that when Jesus was rejected at Nazareth, that he went to live in Capernaum, okay? So Capernaum, the town, is where Jesus lived. It was the base for his ministry years. That three, three and a half years when Jesus is actually preaching and teaching and doing his active ministry, home base is Capernaum. Some people think it's Jerusalem. That's not true. Jesus was a Galilean. He was in the north of Israel. He only went to Jerusalem for holidays because it was required by the, the Jewish law, right? You'd have to go for Passover and Feast of Tabernacles and things like that. But he would go for the feast holidays and he would come back and he would go and he would come back, okay? If you if you take the life of Jesus, if you take the you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and you kind of put points on a map of where the events happen, what you see is that, that Capernaum is the center point and he goes out and comes back, he goes out and he comes back, okay? Whether that's Jerusalem, whether that's Gadara, whether that's the north, up into what we would probably call Lebanon today, it's always out and back, out and back, because Capernaum is the anchor point during those ministry years. I want you to think about what was that like. What was it like for three years to have Jesus living three or four doors down? That he was in residence in your town, physically. Your kid gets hurt, you stomp your toe, you get sick, don't worry about the doctor. Just go to Jesus. Oh, yeah, we'll take him down there. For three years. 1,200 days, 1,000 days, something like that, right? You had the option of physically watching Jesus on a day-to-day -day basis. Luke 4 gives us a window into one of those days, okay? And I won't do the whole story because I don't have enough time today. But if you look at Luke 4, what happens is basically this. Jesus has just come to town. And on a Sabbath, on a Saturday, he goes into the synagogue to teach. And while he's teaching, it says that those who are gathered, now the synagogues were kind of interesting. They were, they were kind of like theater in the round, okay? So you had to change this room and put the chairs around the outside edge and put me in the middle. And that's kind of how it worked. So you're walking in the middle and looking at the people around you, right? And that's kind of how it went down. So, and, and by the way, that building, we know exactly where it was. 100% exactly where this building is. If you ever come to Israel with us, I'll take you, I'll show you exactly where this, this went down. So, so Jesus is in the middle. He's walking, he's talking, he's teaching, he's preaching. And we know the kind of things that Jesus said when he spoke. He would say things like, Moses said, you know, if you want to have a divorce, give your wife a contract. But I say, and he would correct it or change it or extend it, really. Okay? And that's weird. Because you got to think, if I stood up here and said, you know, in the book of Ephesians it says, but I'm telling you, 
and I tried to correct, extend, or change what the text of the Bible says, you guys would run me out of here, and you should. Okay? But Jesus, it says, quote-unquote, spoke with authority. In other words, he spoke in his own authority. He didn't say, Moses said, or the scripture says. He just would say, I tell you. And the people in the synagogue, you know, the church, if you would, are all around, and they're mumbling, and they're like, what is this? What is this? It says that they were astonished. They're like, what's going on? I don't know. And they're, and they're kind of talking. And right about that moment, someone with a, with a demon, a demon-possessed person, begins to, to manifest that demon. And, and to shout, this is the son of you know, and I, I don't know if you guys have ever been around someone who was demon-possessed. Have you ever seen that before? I, I, I believe I have twice. And just let me tell you, when that happens, it, it's shaking. It's unnerving, you know? And it gets your attention, just like, whoa, what is going on? And so you can imagine this interruption, in this, in the, and everybody's like, whoa. And then Jesus looks at the demonized boy, and he says to the demon, get out of him. And it says the demon left him. And, and then everyone is real astonished, because they, now they go from, does he have authority to say this? Like, well, maybe he does. And you saw it happen, right? He's giving demons orders, so maybe. And so they're all like, whoa. And then it says they went out talking about him all around. Which makes sense, right? I mean, imagine that happened in our church service. Imagine today, all of a sudden, hopefully this doesn't happen, you know, someone demon-possessed starts to, to manifest, and I were to say, get out of him. And it worked. And, and, and you guys would all go to Cracker Barrel and talk about it, right? 100% or somewhere, wherever you go. And, and exactly what happened. The people don't change, okay? Technology changed, culture changed, and people don't change. So they all went out talking all over the place, right? And then something interesting happened, which is that Jesus goes to Peter's house, which is just like right across the street. We don't know where that was, too. It's about maybe 30, 40 yards away. He goes to Peter's house. He heals the mother-in-law. And then it says all through the evening, people would come to him, and he would teach, and he would preach, and he would heal, and he would minister. And that's a snapshot of one day. And maybe there were a thousand after that. Okay? He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing, he's moving around the town, and people are coming and pouring in. But there's something real interesting that you got to know, which is that in Matthew 11, of Jesus' ministry, he looks at Capernaum, Chorazim, and Bethsaida, the surrounding villages, and he looks at them, and he says, you are cursed. Cursed. He looks at Capernaum and says, you think you're going to be exalted? No. You're going to go down to Hades, because if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen what you've seen, they would have repented, but you haven't. They saw him for three years. He lived in the town. About half the miracles recorded, you know, in the Gospels take place in what is wrong with these people? What happened? And what I would tell you, what I believe happened, is that they wanted Jesus to be Lord of everybody else and tell them what to do. And they wanted Jesus to be the Lord of the government and to give them a political salvation. And they enjoyed the fringe benefits of being close to him. They enjoyed the healings. They enjoyed the financial benefits of all the people coming in and buying stuff in Capernaum. They, they enjoyed the show, and they enjoyed sort of being close to the Jesus thing, but they never accepted him as their personal Lord and Savior, okay? They, they never got beyond, yeah, Jesus, tell the priests and the Romans what to do. They wanted that. They never got beyond that to tell me what to do. 
I'll follow you. He never got personal with them. And so three years later, he looks at them and he says, you're cursed. And you have the option, if you grow, have grown up and you exist in Christian culture, and you've been around Jesus an awful lot, but you never made that step into he's your Lord and Savior, you run the risk of being in that camp of people who enjoyed being near him, but you never take him as your Lord. And that's a scary place to be. But that's not where everybody was. There were a few people in and around Capernaum and those areas that really did embrace what he was saying and doing. Okay? And in chapter 5, we get a picture of one of those. And that's what I really want to talk about mostly. Um, so here's what happens in uh, 5. Uh, okay. Uh, chapter 5, it says, as the crowd was pressing, so this is probably just a day or two later. So he, he speaks in the synagogue. He heals Peter's mother. And then we shift the scene to the shore of the lake. Okay? Now, now we're going to talk about Peter because Peter was one of the people from that area who becomes truly, fully a believer in Christ. Right? So let's look at the difference between the people in the town who at the end of the day, despite seeing Jesus, are cursed, and Peter, who obviously is not. Okay? Let's look at the difference there. Um, and, and kind of talk that through. Now, what you got to know is the Gospels are interesting regarding how Peter became a disciple because Matthew and Luke and John give us really, frankly, different versions of how he became a disciple. Okay? John says that Peter and Jesus met at a John the Baptist event, uh, probably down near Jericho somewhere. Okay? Matthew says that Jesus passed along and said, or Jesus passed along and said, you should be a disciple, and Peter followed. And Luke gives us the account we're about to read. Now, whenever you encounter something like that in your Bible, what you need to do, or this is at least what I do, I think it probably works, is you're going to assume the Bible's telling you the truth. And therefore, the truth is found in putting those three stories together and synthesizing them. Okay? So, what John tells us happened. Matthew tells us happened, what Luke tells us happened. And, and the way that makes sense together is that Jesus and Peter met at a John the Baptist, you know, event introduced by Peter's brother, right? That that happened because clearly by Luke 4, Jesus knows Peter because he goes to his house after the synagogue service, right? And heals the mother-in-law. But Peter's not yet a disciple. So they met each other, they know each other, I think what Matthew records of Jesus passing by on the lakeshore and saying, you should follow me, that that's probably also been happening. That that's probably really a process where Jesus has been seeing Peter and saying, you need to come follow me, you come follow me, right? And then Luke, Luke gives us the conclusion, okay? And it goes down like this. It says, as the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by Lake Gennesaret, that's the Sea of Galilee. Okay? There's only one lake in Israel. So just anytime you see, you know, Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, Canaret, Gennesaret, it's the same body of water. Okay? He saw two boats, and Jesus sees two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon. So now he's commandeering his boat. And asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. Now, if you go to Capernaum, what you will see 
is if you go down to the lake shore, you know, and so that now the, the synagogue is directly behind you, but over to your right, just a little bit, a few yards down the, the shore, is a place where there's a bit of a of a cove, if you would, and like a little, I don't want to say a bay, it's too small for that, but a, an indention, you know. There's sort of a natural curve to the land there. And in my head, I kind of envisioned this happening there, because it just would have made sense that you could, you know, if you've got the crowds pushing on you, you can't hardly talk, you could take a boat, you push it right out into that, uh, whatever, little body of water there, and then you could talk, and people could be all around you, you know. And, and in those days, often the teacher would sit and the students would stand, and so Jesus sits in the boat with the people all around, is able to speak to them, okay? And so he teaches that way. And I, you know, that's one of those scenes from Scripture I would love to be able to have a time machine to go back and watch. That'd be pretty cool to be there and see what that looked like. And all the while, while Jesus is teaching, Peter and the, guy, the other guys who would become the disciples later are busy cleaning and drying their nets, okay? Now, here's some things you have to know. The historians tell us that the process of cleaning and drying those nets took two or three hours. Okay? It wasn't like, well, we're done fishing, let's go to the house. Because you got to think, there, there's no Bass Pro Shop back then. Okay? If, if, if Peter and the disciples messed up their nets and that was their livelihood, they had a big problem. Those nets had to be perfectly cared for and maintained. They had to be dried and cleaned so they would rot every single day. Perfectly stored, perfectly repaired, perfectly mended, so there would not be any problem. Also, you don't want to lose a catch, right? There's a tear, something happens, you lose fish. That, that's how you live. You sell fish to live. So, so that net was, was painstakingly, meticulously maintained. Okay? Two or three hour process. So Jesus is talking, Peter is fixing the net. You have to also know the fishermen on the lake worked the night. They did not work the day. Because, certainly at certain times of year, the fish don't like it hot. The Sea of Galilee is very deep, and so during the day, they would drop down on the bottom of the lake, and you couldn't really fish at that point. The fish weren't active. They were really, really down low. You couldn't, you couldn't get them. And so at night, the fish would come back up to the surface, and they would fish the night. Okay? which is clear from the text that that's exactly what happened. So Peter and the guys had worked a third shift, basically. They had worked all night long, and the only thing between them and a bed was finishing cleaning that net. Okay? That's your background of what happens. So Jesus is teaching, Peter's cleaning, Peter's tired from the night's work, and he didn't catch anything, so he's probably kind of grumpy. You know, he didn't make any money last night. And at the end of it all, this is what happens. It says, when he, meaning Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now let me tell you, the last thing Simon Peter wants to do in that moment right there is to throw that net back in the water. Because he throws that net back in the water, and now he's two or three more hours from that bed. Okay? On top of that, you're not going to catch any fish now, Jesus, because it's not the right time. The fish are up at night. It's now middle of the day, and I want to sleep. And you see that in Peter's response. Listen to Peter's response. Peter says, this is chapter 5, verse 5. He 
says, Master, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. Okay? That's Peter. He's like, that's his. I, I mean, have you ever had that response when the Lord told you something? When you knew, like you knew in your heart, mind, soul, spirit, you knew I am supposed to do this. And your response was, Can we do something else? I mean, have you ever have you ever had that response to, to what the Lord's telling you? Where you were just like, I don't even, and I don't know what it is for you, right? Because everybody has a different story. Maybe it was like a, a, a call to do something, you know, like missions or pastor. But it doesn't have to be that. That's very glamorous. It's not that glamorous, by the way. But it doesn't have to be that. It could be it could be a call to step up and, and volunteer at the church, you know, teach something. You're just like, it's Sunday morning. Do I get up early? I don't want to. You know, it, it, it could be it could be a, a sin thing. Where the Lord is just saying, you've got to turn your back on this. And you're like, yeah, but I like it. You know, it, it, it could be a relationship issue where the Lord has told you you need to forgive somebody and reach your hand out to them. You know, extend hospitality to someone you don't want. I don't know what it is for you. But have you ever had that moment where you knew what God wanted you to do? And you knew you didn't want to do it. That's exactly where Peter is in this moment. The Lord says, go out in the deep water. Throw your net, and Peter says, we fished all night and caught nothing. Meaning, you may be the Lord, I'm an expert fisherman, and this is a bad idea. Okay? That's what he's saying right there. And I want you to think about something else also. I want you to have something else. See, we, we read the Bible. So one of the cool things I get to do is I get to do Bible studies for Muslims who have become believers. So I get to sit down and go through Bible stories with guys who actually never read the book before ever. And they didn't grow up in a culture that told the stories, right? So I get to do things like, uh, I remember recently doing the prodigal son with some uh, Muslim background guys. And at the point when the son says, you know, I'm going to go back to my father, so that, so I'm kind of reading it. They got it, but they're not lifting my head fast enough to. And I'm like, what do you think the father did? And they're like, did he throw him out? Did he beat him? You know, if I do the prodigal son for you guys, you know, in the end, you know, so it's no, no fun. But with those guys, are like, what did he do? He probably should have beat him or taken something from him. Or the they, they, they don't know the end. You know, we know the end from the beginning. And so it takes some of the drama out of these stories. And, and with the story like this, it's the same thing happens. Because we know the end. See, we know who Peter becomes, right? You already know. You know that Peter becomes so empowered by the Holy Spirit of God that his shadow healed people. That is going to happen to him just a few years down the road. You know, he's three and a half, four years from that at this moment, right? He eventually is going to walk on water with Jesus. He eventually is going to speak, and on one day, 3,000, 5,000 people come to faith just like this because the Holy Spirit is just working him through his words and his, his, his ability to communicate with people. You know, we, we know eventually he will travel all the way to Rome, and, and help found the church in Rome and be the pastor there until the last days of his life until he'll become a martyr. And then on the very spot where this man died, the largest church in the world is built. Okay, St. Peter's Basilica. It's like 150 yards long. Okay, this thing's enormous. You can play a legal football game inside of it. But really, it's 75 meters, if you want to be all European, wide, and 70, 150 meters long. It's unbelievable. Built to honor this man on the site where he died, okay? That's who he would become, but that is not who he is 
this day, he is not yet a disciple. He is not yet known the Lord. He is not yet repented of his sin. He's a grumpy, tired, foul-mouthed, blue-collar, working fisherman. That's what he is on this day. He's just like any one of us. Okay? And he stands at a crossroad, and he doesn't even know it. He stands at a moment where he could say, no, that's a dumb idea, Jesus. I'm not throwing my net in that water. And he could go home and go to sleep, and his life would never have changed. He wouldn't be the guy you know. And he said no in that moment, and he had the right to. Okay? If he says yes, then his entire future opens up to him, right? That destiny that we know becomes open to him with his yes to the Lord. Okay? And so when you stand in those moments and you know the Lord is saying, I want you to do this, and you're saying, no, I don't want to do that, Lord. Then you have no idea what you might be shutting down. You just don't know. Okay? You don't know what miracle and what destiny and what future is on the other side of your obedience to the Lord. But I can guarantee you, so long as you stand in disobedience to the Lord, nothing's going to change. You will sit there in that plateau moment for as long as you want to, and the Lord will let you because he gives you freedom to do that. Okay? So, so I think to me that the, the, the powerful lesson of this whole story is you got to just, just say yes. And, and listen to Peter's words. It, it's not an enthusiastic yes, frankly. You, know, you, you get what he says. We've worked hard all night and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. Okay, this is not a, yes, Lord, I want to throw the net in the water. It's not even that. It's a, if you say so, I'll do it. Now, granted, that is not the best way to be obedient to the Lord. Okay, the Bible says that the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And that applies not just to your money, but to your time, your efforts, and you know, everything else, right? It's better if you can be, yes, Jesus, because I know you're going to do something. Like, okay, that's better. But, but sometimes that's we can't get there. Okay, I mean, if you're like maybe maybe you're already fully spiritually developed, and then you, you, all of your yeses are like, woo, okay, that's not where I am. Sometimes my yeses are like, all right, let's go. Okay, it's enough. It's enough in God's hands. It's enough. Your your sort of sloppy, reluctant obedience in His hands can go so much farther than possibly know. Okay? So so Peter says, all right. Paddles out a few feet, throws the net in, and then things get crazy. When they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full, they began, they caught enough fish to sink two boats. I don't know how that fits in a net. I don't know how that works. But it's like the fish are just like... Come in the boat. And, and Peter, who's a professional fisherman, and he knows there are no fish here this time of day. This is not normal. Like he, Peter knows in that moment, this is a full-on miracle. He knows it in that moment. And Peter looks at Jesus, and he says, Go away from me, because I am a sinful man, Lord. And that is Peter's moment. See, the, the, the Bible says in the Beatitudes that we have to be poor in spirit and Right? But if you want to be blessed, you want to be happy, 
Foreign spirit doesn't seem like a very happy thing to be, right? Uh, foreign spirit in the morning, but that's exactly where you have to start for the Lord to bless you. And you have to go to look at him and say, I don't deserve anything from you. And I'm so sad about my sin in my state. You have to get to a point where you know, I have nothing to exchange with you, God. There's nothing I can give you in exchange for heaven. Nothing I can offer you in exchange for a blessing. I'm 100% a debtor with nothing to offer. Foreign spirit and mourn. I am so sorry for where I am. And Peter hits that point right there. He says, get away from me. I don't deserve to be around you. He acknowledges the Lordship Lord to Jesus. And Jesus says, now I can do something with you. Let's go. And he says, from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. And in that moment, they sell everything, and they leave, and they go, and they follow. So I would tell you the key to get from where you are to where you want to be is being radically passionately, even if you're scared to death, obedient to Jesus Christ. That's the key. So I don't know what you're holding back or holding out on him. Maybe you're not, that's not your thing. But I bet there's a lot of people here who it is. Just say yes. Just say yes. And let me tell you it might hurt. Okay, let's, let's be honest about that. It might hurt. Whatever he's asking of you may be painful. But yeah, I, I had an experience. Oh, this isn't too gross to you guys, but you're just kind of being honest. When I was I was 13 years old. When I was 13 years old, I was out running with my pet dog, and he he ran between my, my legs. As you're running, he stepped between my legs. I tripped and fell. I landed on my right hand. I broke my middle finger all the way back to my wrist. Just, just rolled it up, okay? Now, let me tell you, which is the emergency room, let me tell you that having that finger reset was probably the single most painful moment of my life. I cannot tell you how much it hurt. They didn't give me anything. No, no shots, nothing. I was like, come here. You know. But, but, but the question is, and God is like that sometimes. He's a doctor, and he knows that maybe you need that painful, and then now you can heal. Maybe you need to encounter that painful moment, that painful thing, whether it's only repentance, going to somebody you did wrong, fixing something that you did wrong, accepting to do something, whatever it is. Go through that, you know, because, I mean, let's be honest, you know, if they had to clean the nets, they didn't miss their sleep that day. It was worth it. But, okay, so so maybe there will be some pain involved in that moment of obedience. But it's so worth it on the back side. It's so worth it, right? So so, so I'm going to leave things with that. And, and so with that, let me, I want to pivot towards what we're doing now. You know, because there's a question that has to be asked, and I keep asking it myself. Question is, 24 years of experience in Israel, and you're going to another country. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? And the short answer, the one word answer is obedience. Because with all my heart, I believe that we're called to. Because, here, because here's what's happening. I'll give you a sort of just a short uh, snippet of what's going on in the world. In the last 20 years, there have been four contiguous countries that have basically collapsed. Those countries being Afghanistan, Iran, Syria, and Iraq. Those countries have just absolutely collapsed. Iran is in the process of collapsing due to economic stuff. The other three countries have had war and turmoil, and they're utterly in really bad shape and getting worse, not better. And with that collapse, those countries, people have exited them by the millions. They flee. And what most of them do is they cross Turkey, which borders them, 
they walk all the way across. Just about three weeks ago, I was in a refugee camp on an island called Lesbos in Greece. I met a 12-year-old boy, and, and I, I talked to him, honestly, because he had the most striking blue eyes I've ever seen in my life. Like, he's this sort of dark Middle Eastern Persian kid with these bright blue eyes, and it was just striking. I'm like, oh my God, look at a kid. And so then I said hi to him. I'm like, hey, I can hear you a little English. We started talking. And I said, how did you get here? And I thought, well, I said, where are you from? He said, Afghanistan, which that's like three countries away. And then I said, how did you get He said, walking. Walking across two countries that are bigger than Texas, you know, and they're shaped like this. Yeah, walking from Afghanistan through Iran, all the way across Turkey to the western coast of Turkey. Once they get there, because they want to get into Europe, because Europe is sort of where they think they can find they get on rafts or lifeboats, anything they can find, and they paddle out to these Greek islands, okay? And there are Greek islands that are right on the coast of Turkey, so like literally one island you're on, Samos, is only two and a half miles from the Turkish coast, so it's a short strait separating them. They'll paddle across these islands, and this kid had paddled across from Turkey with his family to Lesbos, which is about an eight-mile paddle. It's a long way to paddle a raft, okay? They come across, and then they had, were in refugee camp and these people are coming by the thousands upon thousands. I'll, I'll show you a couple of videos here that you just want to see what it looks like. Here's the first one. So, so this is kind of typical. This is on one of the islands. This is on Samos, which is by the way, Paul went there, by the way. Um, and you know, they just they come in and they'll just steal whatever they can get to make tents. So that's some. We'll go to the next one. There's some more. And on, down below, you can see this beautiful little port town. And on the hills up above it, you have three, 4,000 people living in steel to make a tent out of. Thousands and thousands of people okay, from Muslim-backgrounded countries. And flip to the next one. This is what the Greek government did in response. They're building these permanent camps. These people are in, in a month or two, everyone in the camp that you just saw will get moved into this place, which is, which is a permanent, it's kind of borderline jail, frankly, that they're going to move them all into. And they have certain hours a day they can leave and exit there. They can go in and minister. But if you don't build that, facilities like this all over these islands and on the mainland of Greece. So, so what does that have to do with, with me? What it has to do is this. I, in, in a Bible study, and I actually got to read this scripture. I don't, there's a really cool scripture. It's Acts 17. It's Paul in actually Athens, Greece. In Athens, Greece, Paul, on, it's called the, you know, the Mars Hill Address, which is why we've adopted that name for our ministry, the Mars Hill Initiative. On Mars Hill in Acts 17, Paul addresses this exact situation. This is what he says. Get the scripture. He says, he says, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Um, if you look at a more, if you look at a more modern translation, it'll say the boundaries of where they live. Okay? So, so get that. Get what God is saying. That God ordained, pre-appointed the times and the nations. That's why certain nations have come and gone, right? Their time's over. Okay, you know, Babylonians buy them anymore. You know, things like that. But also the borders of where they live. So all these people from Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, used to live in certain borders, and now they're living in different borders. And if Paul's telling us the truth, then that didn't just happen. God did it. Okay? So that's pretty striking. Well, then the question is why? 
why would you do this, God? Why would you have all these millions of people go through war and turmoil and struggle, have to flee, have to run? Why would you mess up, you know, to a certain extent, Greece and Europe with all these refugees coming in and the different, you know, why would you do this, God? And the next verse gives the answer. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might go for him and find him, though he is not far. In other words, God did this. He displaced these people so they would find him. Okay? Because we were not doing a good job of evangelizing places like Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq because we couldn't, because it wasn't safe. Okay? Like, you would be very ill-advised to go to Afghanistan and preach openly. Okay? That would be a very short-term project for you. Okay? Like, I wouldn't send you there to do that. But you can, and I can, go to Greece and talk to the exact same people as long as I want to. Okay? And, and once they come to faith, they will take that with them wherever they go. If they go back home, if they go other places, they will take the, the kingdom. Listen, this is what God did, right? He drew some church. Tens of thousands of people maybe came to faith. They all sat there in Jerusalem. They wouldn't go anywhere. And so God brought persecution to scatter them because then they would take it with them. Okay? So God controls these things so that his kingdom will grow. And, and according and, and what I believe, and I've seen it, I just got back from here. I guess it's three weeks ago now. I was just there. I took all those pictures of me and Uncle that I had a few months ago. Um, I met more Muslim background believers in 10 days in Greece than the last five years in Israel. That's just true. They are coming. Because not only do now we have access we didn't have before, but they have been shaken in a way that they're not used to. You know, if God had left them there in their home countries, then they would have just peacefully drifted along through their lives on their way to hell. And God loves them too much to let that happen. And so, why are we going? Why are we leaving a place that we had come to really love and be very comfortable in? Because the harvest matters. Because the only thing
so Lord, I, I just ask you, I ask your blessing on everyone here. I ask that you would give them the courage and the faith and the desire to step out for you. I pray that you would, you would, you would guide them and when they say, oh, I don't want to do that, Lord, that you would give them the faith to just say, okay, I'll do it anyway. And, and Lord, I pray that you would be blessing them down here. Now, Lord, I pray that for my family, Lord, as we have stepped out into uncharted waters in these next several months in our life. Lord, I, I pray that you would bring us the, the help that we need and you would bring us the, the resources that we need. Give us the guidance, protection, peace, love, joy that you only you bring to get through things like that. And I thank you so much, Lord, for friends like we have right here that have partnered with us to help us to go. And God, we thank you for it. And I just pray your blessing on this house.